Phil Hay Show. Welcome to the show. Great to have football back and it's racing towards a conclusion. And right now you can get a huge range of markets on Bet365, including first, last, anytime goal scorers and loads more. And with over 45 million members, it's the world's favorite online betting company. And with football on, well, it's back-to-back, wall-to-wall, just about every day at the moment with the Premier League and the EFL. With Bet365's Bet Builder, you can create your own personalized bets and you can combine match results, players to score, number of goals, and plenty more. And if you can't watch all these live games with Bet365's Match Live feature, you can follow everything that happens through live graphics and text. Bet365 is the world's favorite online sports betting company. You can get the app from Google Play and the Apple App Store right now. It's for over 18s only, and please gamble responsibly. The Phil Hay Show brought to you by The Athletic and The Square Ball. I'm Dan Moylan. With me is Edinburgh's finest. From The Athletic, it's Phil Hay. Hello. And from Pontefract, but let's not hold that against him. From The Square Ball, it's Michael Normanson. Hello. And in this show, we're going to be talking about the exclusive that Phil brought you on Leeds United getting Academy Category 1 status. To read that piece and everything that Phil's done, get yourself a subscription to The Athletic. There's a 30-day free trial available right now. To jump on that, head to theathletic.com forward slash Leeds pod. You get the very best Leeds United coverage and the same goes for every club and sport from around the globe, all without ads and clickbaits. Theathletic.com forward slash Leeds pod. Well, this is very exciting because we are recording at the same time as the Forest Fulham match that's on at the minute and uh, Brentford Charlton is about to kick off any second. So we can bring you live score updates from the past so you can experience our terror in real time. However, to the present day, Phil, where are we? Yeah, as the goals go in, it's interesting as well because this is, and I, I'm, I will get shot for saying this, but this is actually the first week where Leeds could go up at the end of it. Um, it's going to take a, a right old run of results, and I would say that the odds against it would be pretty short. Uh, but it's it's crunch time now, and, and actually we, we were chatting on to Jamie Shackleton last week, and um, we got on to talking about schedule at the moment and the speed at which the games are are flying by and you know he, he said um, at that stage there were six games to play which is a lot of football and you know a lot of scope for the division to change but actually even then the, the season was going to be dust, done and dusted in two and a half weeks um, so it's, it's very intense at the moment and it is so back to back in a way that, that I've never really experienced doing this job before and I think at Leeds the Certainly in, in a better frame of mind at this stage of the week than they were after the, the game against Luton last week. I think we touched on it in the previous podcast, but it, it was quite telling, I thought, that there was a bit of a clear air meeting at Thorpe Arch on Wednesday and after the draw with Luton. Um, the senior players in particular, I think, just felt that the time was right to, to say to everybody and to remind everybody that one more big push from here was, was going to be enough, that they could probably be playing better than they were. They could probably have been sharper and more fluent against full, uh, against Luton, much as they, they probably deserve to win that game. I think as well, it, it probably just probably showed you that for all the projections of how fit and, and electric they were going to be after the lockdown, I don't think prior to Blackburn, and, and perhaps with the exception of the second half against Fulham, we were really seeing a, a massive gulf between Leeds and the other teams who'd come back. I thought Luton looked very fit and looked very organised and, and certainly knew knew what they were about and, and knew how they were going to play. And, and that Wednesday, to me, did, that Wednesday meeting did just feel like a bit of a G-up and a, a kind of admission that actually it hadn't gone as well as people that people at Thorpe Arch had hoped. And, and it, it wasn't a case of Leeds flying while everybody else tried to get up to speed. But... You know, that win at Blackburn I thought was really impressive. But we spoke to Bielsa earlier today and he said it was it was better than good, the performance, but it wasn't much better than good. Um so, you know, his his kind of usual 
high standards. But I personally felt it's the best Leeds have played since the lockdown ended. And I I really did think that with the exception of 10 shaky minutes at the start when Blackburn hit the post and and, um, Sam Gallagher missed a a very, very good one-on-one, I thought Leeds had that under control and and had that game in hand um, right the way on. What was said in that meeting? Any more information that came out of that, Phil? Or was it just similar to the one that happened post-Forest earlier in the season where they just put down a few markers and laid out their expectations? What was it? No, the, the Forest meeting was different in as much as it was Bielsa who led that one and, and it was Bielsa who I think himself saw the need just to, to be a bit more empathetic with the way that the players were feeling and, and saw the need just to remind them that they were a good team and, and that they, they were better than the results they were having at that time. And, and also, that was at a stage of the season, if you remember, early February, Fulham and Leeds um, joint second um, in the division and... and so much football left that there really was the scope to, to drop into the playoffs quite rapidly if the form hadn't turned around. I think last Wednesday, there wasn't anything like the same level of stress or panic or, or concern about what was going on. I think it, it was just the, the sense that if they could really bite the bullet and if they could if they could raise the performances by a, a little percentage, just get up to a slightly higher level, start playing closer to the best and get the results flowing in the way that they'd hoped to after the restart, and the way that, for example, Brentford had done, then actually promotion could come pretty quickly. Um, and I think it was just a, it was just all about trying to avoid this becoming any more of a dogfight than than it needed to be. Because it has to be said that that Leeds weren't preparing for a dogfight when they came back. You know, the attitude was, as you know, Adam Forshaw said in in that podcast we've spoken about. Let's get this done. Let's make it a formality. Let's let's not mess around and let's get over the line. And I think they, they just felt that having taken four points from a possible nine from the first three games, it, it was it was nowhere near as good as they'd hoped it would have been. And to matters at hand then, Stoke this week, you've been in the Bielsa virtual press conference today. Updates from that. Costa and Dallas will probably place as Marcelo and uh, Jean-Kevin Augustin. More convenient was the phrase used uh, for him to return to Leipzig. Yeah, so Costa and Dallas first. They've they've trained. I'm talking on Tuesday, so they've trained on Tuesday. I suspect they will train no problem as well in, in the sessions that are left before Stoke. Bielsa did say we'll probably play. Um, I, now I don't know if that means that they would be fit to be on the bench or, or be on the squad in the squad, or whether he means that they they will actually play because that would be quite a significant decision given how well. Barry Douglas played over at Blackburn, given that Alioski, without being great at Ewood Park, I didn't feel was was very effective and, and made a difference against both Fulham and Luton. And and I think I, I don't think there's any issue at all with, with Dallas at left back, but I would certainly say that Costa has been very in and out so far and, and probably more out than in um in, in the games that, that he's played in. But you know how Bielsa works and you know how how much he ties himself to an unchanged lineup, and you know how loyal he is to the players who sit in it. So it wouldn't be a great surprise if he if he did make those changes. Augustine again, it's more convenient is a is an odd phrase, but I think is is kind of code for it suited everyone, including Bielsa, for Augustine not to be there. I mean, we know that Leeds have not extended his loan. We know that there is a, a potential fight coming over this obligation to have to sign Augustine for about 18 million from Leipzig if they, they do go up. Um, I made contact with some of Augustine's people at, at the back end of last week and they're very clear in saying that as far as Augustine is concerned, he thinks his, his career at Leeds is done. He, he doesn't expect to, to play for the club again. He's very much under the impression that, that Bielsa no, no longer wants him involved, um, no longer sees him as as part of the picture there. Um, and I think politically it would be 
there is there is a scenario that comes around where Leeds are forced to pay the money for him, depending on how tight, what tight the contract is, and and depending on whether there's any wriggle room with this obligation. But politically, it becomes difficult, stroke impossible to actually bring him back to the club, given that it's now becoming apparent that that Bielsa doesn't want him involved, that that it's not a deal. Leeds want to go through with and on that basis alone you can't see Augustine having any motivation to to make this a permanent transfer. So more convenient I think is right in the sense that there was nothing to be gained from having a, a kind of unfit Augustine moping around the place but more convenient certainly doesn't reflect the, the situation Leeds are in with this and, and it doesn't reflect the fact that Leipzig are not going to go quietly when it comes to, to forgoing the, the millions of pounds that they've been promised. Is this essentially just in the hands of lawyers now until we next hear something? Well, I said on the previous podcast that there are a number of ways that that this could go, and you know that there is always the the potential for Leipzig, Augustine, and Leeds to find another way. But I, I find it hard to imagine that anybody else, would, any other club, would be offering the sort of fee that Leeds agreed in January because they, all they've seen in the time since is Augustine struggle to cope with Bielsa's methods, albeit you know very high octane methods. And essentially make no impact at all, score no goals, play you know less than an hour um, in the time that he's been here. So as much as he is highly talented, and I don't think there's any question about that, there probably isn't going to be a stampede to buy him in the summer. And because of that, Leipzig are, are going to want to cover their back and, and they will quite simply want the money. It's just a case now of whether they decide to hold out for that. It's a case of whether the contract is... Watertight, but I find it hard to imagine that even if Leeds believed there was a way out of this, um, if Leipzig were opposed to to any other solution other than Leeds taking Augustine on, um, I don't see much alternative other than a move to court and and a situation or, or arbitration and a situation where essentially legal people sort this out. Brentford nil, Charlton one. Live from here as it comes, yeah. <laughs> Live from the past as it is, um, so you will know listening to this whether this turns out to be a complete false dawn or whether this is exciting news for Leeds. But um, fingers yeah, crossed. Spoiler alert: Brent, Brentford win four-one. <laughs> well, anyway, returning to John Kevin Augustine, just a quick question on that. There, there's a very real thing, a very real possibility here, Phil, that Leeds, to all intents and purposes, have said they don't want him. So then Leipzig then push this one into the courts, and you could imagine it going all the way to like maybe the the court for uh, arbitration for sport, which tends to rule on these matters ultimately. And then in the middle of this is Jean-Kevin Augustin without a club that wants him on either side. No, well, you'll remember a similar case at Leeds, um, which was Cameron Stewart back when Brian McDermott was manager. And and Stewart came in on loan in the January window before McDermott was sacked at at the end of the season. And and at the point where he joined, similar to Hilda Costa now, and as we speak, Costa is is being confirmed by Leeds on on a four-year deal. Um, from Wolves, although we all knew that was going to happen. That's been in the pipeline for, for a long time. It's similar to that. Cameron Stewart was essentially signed there and then. So although it was a loan, the deal was done, taken permanently from Hull in the summer. It was a kind of prerequisite for, for Hull that they wanted um, that to happen. And Stewart um, agreed his contract and it, it was all finalised um, in the, the January window. And latterly, and, and after that point, Massimo Cellino came in as owner, had a look at Stewart, decided that he didn't like him, didn't want him, wasn't interested in keeping him. So Leeds tried to reverse gear out of that one, and, and in the end, that went to that was um, went down the legal path. Stewart won the, the case, and and he was essentially paid the, the full amount of the contract that he was owed over the three years that he'd signed for. The ruling was that there was no legitimate reason 
um, for Leeds to to get out of that deal. Now he was able to find another club because essentially Leeds had said, "Look, we we don't want him. He's not a player. We're we're not registering him." Um, and the the legal battle went on in the background. But you're right. I mean, the, there is definitely the potential for Augustine to get caught in the middle of this one. The the only saving grace, I guess, financially for him, aside from the fact that he is on a big wage at Leipzig anyway, is that he's still under contract at Leipzig. And one way or another, somebody would have to pick up his registration. Somebody would have to, to compensate him, you know, for the fact that he's either staying or he's going or he's not wanted. You know, he he would be, I think, looked after financially by, by any legal process in this. But it's not great for his career. And he's had a couple of quiet years quiet year at Leipzig, he went to Monaco where he didn't play much, he's come to Leeds where he really hasn't played a lot and, and has not coped at all with a regime that, you, you know, you have to say that a lot of players around Bielsa actually have, have tuned into really well and, and have, have coped with, over the past two years, all the, the mainstays of his team. So he doesn't look or feel like much of a commodity suddenly, even though he is a talented striker and even though if you got on top of him, like Bielsa said himself, you know, if, if he was fit and, and if he was scoring goals... You would be talking more in the thirty, forty million pound bracket than you would in the the sort of eighteen million to twenty million that, that Leeds were talking about back in back in January. So for Leeds, it, it's certainly not a priority in the immediate term um, or the short term. They've got games ahead of them. They've got promotion to worry about. Um, they will be dealing with this in the background, or at least they will be trying to get the ducks in a row. But it's it's not something to to focus on at this stage. It will become something to focus on very quickly. Um, if they do go up and once this season finishes, if they are in the Premier League, they're going to have to figure out how they're, they're going to solve this because they're, they're not a cash-rich club and, and they will get an increased income from going into the Premier League. That that goes without saying. But they can absolutely not afford to burn 18 to 20 million on a player who looks like he's never going to play for the club again and certainly doesn't think he's going to play for the club again. To the more immediate pressing stuff and that's our promotion and Blackburn. Returning to that and what you said is our best performance so far after the comeback. What do you think was it that made the difference? Was it that clear the air meeting that just allowed them to elevate their performance? Or do you think something like maybe putting in Barry Douglas at left back just added that little bit more balance? I thought it looked a lot more balanced on that left-hand side. And that's even bearing in mind how good Stuart Dallas has been. But it just looks with a natural lefty on that side, that bit more secure at left back. I agree with that. I, I do think the team looked a bit fresher and just looked to have more variety in the play. It was less predictable. Um, certainly Blackburn found the runners and, and the, the range of passing quite difficult to track. It definitely helped as well that Blackburn were prepared to play um, on Saturday. It wasn't like Luton where you had um, deep lines and banks of defenders and midfielders that are very difficult to play through. It was very, very open from the start and it was that classic scenario where a team tried to trade punches with Leeds and, and ultimately came off worst and and it you know it has to be said by fine margins that Gallagher one on one early on was inches wide. You had the um the shot off the post um just after in, in those those early ten minutes. Um so there was the potential for it to be different. But I think what, what surprised me was that when we first got to Ewood Park, we were looking at the pitch and we looked at the players coming out onto it and walking around and you could see the depth that the the, the footprints were making on it. And Alioski was signalling up to Brad Rosani in the director's box saying, you know, the, the tough is really long. Like, it's really long grass. It was very, very wet in Lancashire. So it had the potential to be a really heavy and slow and difficult pitch. Um, so because of that, you wondered if it might actually play into Blackburn's hands and, and might suit them. But I think, you know, to be fair to Tony Mowbray, they had to win on Saturday. And, and I think they, they, you just felt 
the the need to get stuck in from them. You felt the need to go for broke a little bit and to 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 play properly for three points as opposed to hoping to to nick them. It was almost like last chance saloon, but that very really really works against Leeds playing them at, at their own game. And I think Luton at home was far more of a blueprint of how to get the better of Bielsa's side. Blackburn took a bigger risk and, and paid the price for it. Good performance from Patrick Bamford, wasn't it? As well, we got um, both sides of his game. We got the goal, but we also got the running as well, which we've either kind of lacked one or the other in recent weeks, which is a theme that we touched on on the Square Ball podcast earlier in the week. It's a good finish as well. I mean, a, a lovely move. I think if you'd been a Blackburn supporter, there would have been some question probably over the, the challenge by Cleek and whether or not it, it was a foul. But what I like about Leeds in those those circumstances is the speed of the turnover and the, and the precision of the play going forward. And, and obviously a, a better finish from Bamford than you do get from him on on other occasions and it's you know it it, it is reassuring because they're going to have to be clinical if they do go up you know they, they are going to have situations like that that they're going to have to take advantage of because they they won't come quite as regularly in a better division but that's Bamford up to 15 goals this season and I know we get sucked in all the time to the chat about XG and and his finishing but it struck me on Saturday, so I had a look, that there isn't really anybody else in this squad that is scoring particularly regularly. You've got Harrison on six, you've got Hernandez on six, but once you get past them, you've still got Eddie and Ketia, who's pretty much chipped in as much as the, the rest of the bunch. And it, it isn't a squad where you've got Gradle chipping in with, you know, 18 goals and Housen scoring 10 and Snodgrass scoring 10. It, it You know, it is pretty much on Bamford and his XG shows that he could have had far more than, than 15 goals this season, but they've been they've been pretty precious, and it's that old thing with Leeds. When they score first, they so rarely look like they're going to drop points. I looked at the um, the XG overall for the season yesterday, and we've scored sixty three goals from an XG of seventy seven point two. So you can see we've fallen a little way short, and yeah, the responsibility for that you have to think does lie with the whole squad, really. Yeah, I mean there is part of it that lies with Bamford as well. You you could go through his. Um, you know, the analysis clips of him and, and find plenty of chances that he should have taken. But Leeds under Bielsa have, have just never been a side that score for fun. You know, the, there was the big win against West Brom in season one. There was a big win away at Hull City very recently in, in season two. But you don't ever expect this side to to turn teams over four, five, six, nil. It, it just doesn't happen particularly regularly. Um, It should do. And and I think, as I say, when, when if and when they do go up, that is something they're going to have to improve. And I think, you know, the situation with Augustine probably probably focuses the mind when it comes to working out what they are going to do up front and how they're going to make sure that they do have enough goals in this team because goals are ultimately what, what tend to keep you up in the Premier League. But it was just on, on Saturday, it was all the things that are good about a Bielsa team. It was fluent. It was, you know, in terms of counter-attacking, it was, it was very deadly. It was it was really clinical when it needed to be, and more than anything, it was it was dominant. And Blackburn tried to live with it for a while, but you you knew really after the the third Leeds goal that that it was game over. The goal that did take the headlines was the one from Calvin Phillips, and I want to watch from last week's podcast from you, Phil. Uh, Ever the mystic got your crystal ball out again and said we would score from a corner. Now I think I'm prepared to give you half a point on this. You were almost right because yeah, I think you should direct free kick. We haven't scored one in what it was two and a half, nearly three years. Brilliant. What a finish. Does Phil get a point taken off for um, for saying that Calvin Phillips doesn't strike a ball cleanly? Yeah, so we're back to nil, aren't we? What's nil? Back to minus um, 0.5. Yeah, no good. Yeah, I mean, inevitable really, wasn't it, that we spent last week talking about how bad the deliveries are and, and all of a sudden he picks out that perler. It was funny because on, on Saturdays we were sat in the press box, somebody said to me, that's the, the first 
Timely's a score from a direct free kick since um, since Christensen was was manager and straight away the one that jumped into my head was um, Pablo Hernandez away at Burton, which I think was the the only honourable salute to um, Gianni Vio in the whole time that our um, free kick specialist was here. I mean, it was an absolute cracker, cracking strike, and and even though Armstrong buried one from pretty much the same position in the second half, it wasn't hit with the same power or or the same precision and and it's funny really because I mean I, I went through the stats because there, there isn't really much doubt that some of um, some of Phillips graft from corners is is not what you'd be looking for but at the same time and I've said this previously Bielsa thinks of him as the best striker of the ball he's he's got Barry Douglas he's got Pablo Hernandez there are others with quite a clean touch in that squad but he thinks that the best delivery from dead ball situation is is always from Phillips so First goal in ten attempts from free kicks for Phillips um, under Bielsa, which is not is not a bad rate really, because the the percentage chance of a twenty five yard effort going in is is not especially high. But he's taken two hundred and twenty corners this season, has um, Phillips, and he has an accuracy rate of about twenty nine percent, which interestingly is actually above the average in the division as a whole. But I think even on Saturday, either side of um, either side of the the free kick itself, you can still see. That there are issues with the with corners in particular and and the precision of set pieces. But I'll say it again. I think if I was a coach, if there was one thing I'd want to struggle with, it it would be set pieces. Uh, open play tends to be where the glory is these days. Five games to go. Then a maximum of ten points needed. And depending on what happens in this evening's games, uh, it could be fewer than that. I mean, as we record, Charlton somewhat under siege from Brentford, but still one in front at the minute. Fingers crossed they hang on to that. If if they haven't, uh, and you're listening to this, then. Sorry for just mentioning it at all, because you might be sad. You wouldn't think that Brentford could win every single game, could you? And I say that, you know, liable to trip myself up here completely. But, you know, the, the football, the EFL, the nature of it suggests they just can't. No, I think so. And, and the nature of the championship. I, I would have to go back and look, but I, I wonder when the last occasion was that anybody came, either either won nine on the bounce or came close to, to winning nine on the bounce. It's, it's, it's almost impossible to do. And, and I think, the only thing you could say, you know, in, in their favour is that they're probably the only side since the restart that have looked capable of doing it. I mean, I don't think you could you could even include Leeds in that. They they, they weren't bad down at Cardiff. Um they were were good in the second half against Fulham, but you know, there there were periods of slog and, and very few periods that, that made the games look as easy as Brentford have been making them. But Charlton is a difficult game. They they they've been in good form. There are teams all over the division who are a bit of a threat on the day. Um, and, you know, Cardiff have, have surprised me, but they've looked very, very strong and, and they look to be in, in pretty firm control of sixth place at, at the moment. So it almost feels inevitable to me that in a passage of, of this many games, nine games, you are going to hit a brick wall at some point. And I think I, my feeling was always that if anybody, Fulham or Brentford, sat so far behind Leeds and West Brom, if any team managed to get into the top two, then there would be no argument at all about the fact that that they deserved it. But ultimately, when you're chasing and when you're behind, and this is why it's been so important for Leeds, just to keep the noses in front, you can't afford to lose any ground. Um, and every time you lose, it does more damage to you than it does to Leeds if they drop points. Finally then in this bit, let's talk about the fixtures being moved around for television coverage because we've discovered today that, well, all basically all of our remaining games, barring the last one, which has to kick off at the same time as all the rest, four out of our last five are going to be moved for TV. Um, the Barnsley game is being confirmed today, so you would assume as a knock-on effect of that that the Derby game will get moved as well because they'll want to televise that. So we're probably looking at four out of five. I think not, it'll not only be television for Derby as well, it'll be the fact that Leeds are now playing 
Thursday evening, and uh, you know, on, on that basis, it's unlikely to be played on the on the Saturday date um, or the the original date. It's a bit of a recurring theme from last season, where it felt as if Leeds were always behind Sheffield United in the schedule and always always catching them up, always the, the second game to fall because of the, the TV schedule. But I can never work out whether it's a, a good thing or a bad thing. I mean, as, as, as we speak, Brentford are losing 1-0 to Charlton and, and you would assume that if Brentford do lose tonight um, and, and the gap is, is in any way better or that the potential to extend it is there, then that surely works in, in Leeds' favour. I think it becomes an issue or it's perceived as an issue when the teams behind you are really, really close to your, your back and, and are winning regularly. But th- there are circumstances in which I think it can help. I, I just sometimes feel at this stage of the season that the you know the EFL and, and to an extent the Premier League as well can be a bit lax in the way that they allow this to happen. And, and it feels that there could be a little bit more control over trying to keep fixtures together and, and trying for there not to be this total disparity between who plays first and, and who plays second. But I mean, in terms of whether it actually makes a difference, I, I suspect that comes down to individual players. I think individual players and, and individual coaches would have a, a very different attitude towards that. And I can't, for the life of me, imagine Bielsa ever starting a punch-up over the fact that Leeds have to play on Thursday and, and Brentford play on Tuesday. Always nice to hit the journalistic heights, and you did that today. Phil brought us an exclusive about the academy at Leeds United Category one status has been secured. Now, people will be aware of these ideas, these these themes and how important it is for the club for the future development. But what does it mean in lay terms? Let's break it down then so people can understand exactly what category one means, how it fits into the grand scheme of things and what it means for Leeds United. This is the elite player performance plan that the, the Premier League introduced um, eight or nine years ago, which was designed to change the way that academy football works and, and designed to change the development of English players, supposedly for the better. And what you have is a system um, that grades academies across the country and across the Premier League and the EFL from Category 1, which is the top tier, to, to Category 4, which is the lowest. And Leeds have, have sat in Category 2 ever since EPPP was, was introduced and, and began in, in 2012. And, and they've actually been there quite happily you know when the news came through and, and they were told last week that they'd passed the, the latest audit and the evaluation had, had registered them registered them as um, as category one the first thought was you know at last it's it's about time but not because the club should have got on with this sooner but because they've actually been in a position to qualify for category one status for a long time they've they employ um, enough staff to to hit the quota that's needed for cat one they invest around four million pounds in the academy a year which is comfortably more than the benchmark, again, that's needed for to be a, a top-tier academy. But essentially, over the years, they'd seen very little point in going for Category 1 because they didn't think the changes were, were hugely significant. There are benefits of it, w- without any question. But I think they felt that by being Category 2, it, it limited the, the amount of expenditure that they were actually committed to. So, you know, they, they weren't necessarily pushing themselves too far, even though that the money that was going into annually was was category one level. And and for a long time, I think the only real difference they saw was the fact that in in the games, in the, the under-23s league and the under-18s league, you would be playing better opposition. But ultimately, because academy football is about the development of the, the kids and, and the development of first-team players, they were looking at the production line and they were looking at the productivity of Thorpe Arch and the number of players who were coming through. And they were gen- generally feeling that it was working and it was successful. And actually, as it was and as the setup worked, there was no real need to change it. But what's happened, particularly since Bielsa's come in, is that the investment in Thorpe Arch has gone up and up and up. And the changes have come and the, the facilities have, have been altered and have been upgraded and, and improved. 
And they're now at the stage where I think they're, they're sitting back looking at it and thinking, actually, it is a ca- Category 1 facility. And we should be recognised in that sense. We should recognise it as a Category 1 facility because certainly since Radrazani has, has come in as owner, the, there has been a difference in, in investment. It has changed and it has increased. And, and as I say, that there are perks from it. You know, that there are things things to be gained. But I think from a status point of view, it, it looks good as well because Leeds have had comfortably one of the most successful academies for many, many years now. And, and it does always feel, given the output, that, that it should sit in the top tier. Just to flesh out what Phil said there then. So category one is based on the expenditure, but it also has a knock-on effect about compensation levels and your ability to cherry-pick players from lower down in the academy system. So it's a lot easier to recruit players from category two, three and four. And the compensation is... Uh, sort of tapered off depending on where you get these players from. So it does mean as well that fixed fees go to clubs lower down in the pyramid rather than going to tribunal. So maybe the days of youth players going for four and five million quid are probably over. And that was one of the criticisms of the elite player performance plan is that it, it was liable to hinder the clubs further down in the pyramid. I mean, like you're talking, if a player goes on to make 100 Premier League appearances, your total cost on that that player will be about one and a half million quid. But realistically, it's going to be far lower than that. Like 100 championship appearances is like half a million and it gets lower and lower. So what it does do is it opens the door for Leeds to get better players from around the country because Category 1 is obviously going to be that much more attractive than Category 2. You're right. It was one of the things that certain clubs were unhappy about was that um, EPPP seemed to be essentially further in the strength of your, your elite clubs and your, your elite academies in, in the, the junior um, transfer market, um, in the academy transfer market, and, and was essentially making it easier for them to, to pinch players from elsewhere for fees that were so easily affordable. Um, it was it was almost untrue. Um, so there is a, an added element of protection. I think additional protection comes from the fact that the status alone appeals to academy footballers. I think that there is that feeling of, of wanting to be in, in a top-tier academy as opposed to an, an academy that, that isn't quite at the same level, even though as has been shown at, at Leeds, it, it isn't necessarily, there isn't necessarily a direct correlation between having a Tier 1 academy and being able to produce first-team players. On the contrary, Leeds have been very good at it in Category 2. That, I think, is, is significant and it, it just, I think, adds to the prestige of an academy. It adds to the, the appeal when it comes to, to signing players. And, and I mean, I, I find it interesting that we wrote um, a few... Weeks back, me and, and Matt Wisdom, who's our Crystal Palace reporter, that, that Leeds were very interested in Jaden Raymond um, at Crystal Palace, 16-year-old midfielder, who, to all intents and purposes, a, a month or so ago, was saying no to a deal from Palace and was on his way, and Leeds were very keen and, and were speaking to him. But Palace have been upgraded to, to Category 1 this week, as of Burnley. They're, they're, they and Leeds are the three clubs who've made the cut this time round, I think taking the total of clubs in Cat 1 to 27 and Raymond has actually taken up a, a two-year scholarship at Palace now and, and I can't say this for sure but you do wonder whether the fact that it is now Cat 1 there as it is at Leeds but because it is Category 1 down at Palace whether there's just that bit more appeal and, and whether he thinks that actually having been there for so long it's it's the right thing to do by staying. I think it's been a nice turnaround as well because I, I think back to the time GFH took over the club and I think um, it was Selim Patel correct me if I'm wrong Dan but was asking you about the academy structure and how it was working, which isn't terribly reassuring when you've got the person essentially running the club who doesn't doesn't understand it. And then more recently, when Chilino had obviously run the whole place down, and there were, you know, the pool was drained and the place wasn't being cleaned and what have you. It's um, it's it is reassuring to know that we are now actually invested in these things because it seemed that for years we were actually producing quite good results out of the academy uh, in spite of the investment as well as opposed to because of it. 
Oh, when it came to Salim Patel, uh, it was me actually volunteering the information to him. He didn't ask me. I told him because it was quite clear he didn't know. It was like, I don't know, man being explained, you know, having fire shown to him for the first time or something like that. It was it was one of those worrying signs, but you kind of parked it at the back of my brain and thought, that's fine. Maybe he's just from a business background, doesn't quite get it, but they'll, they'll have a handle on things. Of course they will. Yeah, and of course they did. That surprises me greatly. I have to say, you know, that that is a shock to find that GFH were, were a bit cl- um, clueless about it. They weren't really long enough to make it around long enough to make a positive or negative impact on, on the academy, aside from the fact that, that their management of the club did nothing at all good for the finances. But it was Chilino where the, the real cuts came and, and Chilino who, who really saw the need to trim away at, at what he saw as any kind of excess flab or, or fat up at Thorpe Arch. Um, and, and what it did was it affected the, the continuity of coaching and, you know, it, it created a scenario where players were, the young players were tempted to go elsewhere and it, it isn't difficult as a player to, to go elsewhere. You know, there are umpteen academies and, and umpteen academies that are looking, that have money and are, are looking for, for good players to move. But Radrazani is a much more of a focus on it and, and there were clearly mistakes or financial mistakes made, investment mistakes made in, in his First summer here, there were a lot of academy players brought in from abroad, but at the same time, that there was an issue with the fact that that there was a lack of essentially a lack of under twenty threes players. There wasn't a particularly deep squad, and it wasn't the the first time that had happened either. I remember Conor Shaughnessy signing coming from Reading, and and the feeling at Reading was that he hadn't been good enough for them in the championship, and and people who knew him from down there said, you know, he's he's a good professional and everything else and he works hard but it's hard to see how he is going to be the sort of player that that leads need but quite honestly when he was signed he was signed purely initially to make sure that there was an extra body um, in the squad because they needed a player of his ilk they needed a player in his position and and the numbers were, were just too low and it has changed completely and there's been there's been investment um externally all the way through so people like Leif Davis coming in and um Jordan Stevens coming in and, and as I say there, there will be others and the plan was, if, if it had worked out, to get Raymond in um, from Crystal Palace, really talented box-to-box midfielder, England international. Because I think I think they do want to try and lean on their academy going forward. They they, they will know that in the Premier League, they're going to have to invest differently and they're going to have to spend more and, and they're going to have to start looking at, at some ready-made elite players. But I think having been reliant on the academy for so long and, and having seen it thrive and, and built a reputation with that, they won't want to... They won't want to backtrack and they won't want to let that wither. It's a very good move, this. And as I say, they, they were comfortably placed to, to get Category 1 status quite some time ago. I mean, I'm loath to try and say we should copy Chelsea in any respect, certainly when it comes to their manager. But um, you look at their academy and the amount of players that they've developed through that academy. And we've talked before, I think, about that whole subset of millionaire young footballers who've not made it. But the transfer fees they've raked in from selling those players has been quite phenomenal. And it's, and it's helped them stay in line with financial fair play rules in, in Europe and, and the Premier League. So I think we shouldn't discount that as an avenue that the club might look to pursue in future as well, creating sellable players who might not make it at Leeds, but might make it elsewhere and bring us in that revenue. Possibly, but it's it's difficult and, and expensive to do that. And I think Chelsea have been able to do it because they've been a Champions League club for a long time now. They've been Premier League title winners. They've always been um, at the end of the division you, you want to play at. And they've they've had Abramovich, so they've been able to do expensive transfers for, for a long time. They've been able to, to really look at the top end of, of the elite market and to pay some some really hefty fees. I think it becomes harder to do elsewhere. And, and it's probably 
it's probably quite telling that there aren't many clubs who operate like that in England. There aren't many clubs who are able to farm the sort of cash that they do with very, very talented academy players who, who just can't really get a look in at Stamford Bridge. And, and it's not it's not an easy system. They're, they're set up to work like that. They've, they've got the money to do it. I think in Leeds' position, and certainly for the time being, while they're hopefully going up and then trying to find the, the feet in the Premier League, the academy for them needs to be about player resource. It, it needs to be about players who can come into the team and, and who are ultimately good enough to to be first-team players for a long time. And and I always like going back through, I mean, it's a bit depressing, but I always like going back through the past 20 years and looking at the sort of team you can build with, um, you know, with players who've come through the academy at Leeds and, and realising how many of them have, have gone on to be either very solid Premier League players or, you know, very high-level Premier League and international players like Milner um, and Fabian Delph. I think if, if, you, if you're generating anybody of that ilk, then in Leeds' position at the moment, it's far more beneficial to be keeping them on, on the books than it is to be signing elsewhere and, and essentially using them to raise a bit of revenue. And I think we have to give credit to Radrizani here as well. It's not the headline-grabbing move that repurchasing Ellen Road was, but I think this should come uh, as a close second if you ignore the football side of things like the first team and transfers and so on for a second. In terms of stuff away from that, this comes a close second for me because it shows that commitment to the future and... As we said before there with you, Michael, you, you were mentioning that the, you know, stripping it back under previous regimes. And this this feels like such a positive step and a long-term step. I feel like the stuff that happens on the pitch, which admittedly hasn't gone completely smoothly during Radrizani's time here, you can accept that there is a random element to that. Whereas things like draining a swimming pool at a training ground and changing the coaches every two minutes and having Benito Carbone come in to run it for all of two weeks, you can sort of tell things like that are not going to have a positive effect. So just to know that Things are now being structured properly. And I think that our youth policy is something that Leeds fans are rightly proud of as well. It's unfortunate that in recent years, we've not actually got to see most of the players as they become the stars that they are, like James Milner and I guess to a lesser extent, Lewis Cook and Sam Byron and Fabian Delph. But actually the prospect of being able to maybe watch those players for a few more years would be uh, is what it's all about. With Radrazani as well, this kind of relates to the first team as well as it, it does to the academy. They, they wanted Category 1 status in the end, but you'll, you'll know that the bigger plan here is to move to a new training ground in the city centre, you know, in, in Holbeck, not far from, from Elland Road. And, and initially, the club's intention had been to hold off on, on Category 1 application until they moved into that facility because they knew that that, that facility down in Holbeck would be so high spec and, and would be so state of the art that there was there was literally no way it was going to fall short of the of the category one stipulations. But because they've invested so much for Bielsa and because they've met pretty much Bielsa's every demand for Doms for the players, for a running track, for changes to the pitches, for for just extra amenities and, and facilities and so on. Um, and and you know some of what Bielsa has asked for doesn't apply to the academy, so so wouldn't technically speaking help with the the triple P application. But because they have committed so much to it, they've reached the point where they feel like there should be some return for the money that they've spent, and they're getting a great return from Bielsa and the, and the first team players for that. And actually, they're getting a great return from the under-23s as well. But they, they do definitely feel that the sign above the door should now be Category 1 because there is literally nothing at Thorpe Arch that doesn't tick the boxes. Finally, in this bit then, what does it mean in practical terms for Leeds? What what changes will we see uh, as fans? The basic changes, as an example, will be that the under-23s, rather than playing in the professional development league um, that they're in at the moment, will move into Premier League 2. So they will start to mix with 
your your top tier academies, they'll they'll play at that level. The same should be true of the under eighteens as well. It will be a jump up in opposition, um, which you would assume is a good thing. I mean, it it would in theory automatically help their development and, and it is surely better for them to be playing against higher caliber of, of opposition. It does and, and we mock it all the time, but it does open the door for the, the under twenty threes um to play in the leasing.com trophy or whatever it's called these days, but the, the EFL trophy as a lot of clubs have. And I, I if Bielsa's is here, I'll be fascinated to see what happens with that because his management of the twenty threes is is very specific and, and very strict. And you know that because you, you see so few of them go out on loan. I mean, a, a lot of these 23s, I think, would be good enough to go on loan to League One, League Two clubs and, and to get a bit of a chance. But he, he prefers them to be in with him. He prefers them to be training with with him. That's how he thinks they develop best. And and again, whereas it might look like an obvious move to to put 23s into the, the Checker Trade Trophy, the Leasing.com Trophy, whatever it is, and to give them that that level of opposition. I would assume it will be his call and, and he may he may think differently. But it, it also opens the door to European competition, um, probably a little bit further down the line, that there is a, a, a European um, European tournament that goes on and, and by getting into Category 1, you, you start to, to make that possible as well. So those, aside from what we spoke about with the, the compensation measures and the, the added level of protection and the actual badge itself saying Category 1, those are the kind of key day-to-day or or you know, the, the changes to the schedule or the changes to the, the playing routine that, that you'll see because of this. It's upgrade time. The Phil Hayes Show, a podcast brought to you by The Athletic in association with Harry's. Jeff and Andy founded Harry's, two everyday blokes who didn't want to pay through the nose for overpriced razor blades. Harry's are now almost half the price of the leading five-blade brand, so it makes total sense from a financial point of view. You can get the Harry's trial set for just three ninety-five to get everything you need for a close, comfortable shave. In there is... The weighted ergonomic handle, precision-engineered five-blade cartridge, rich lathering shave gel, and a travel blade cover. And Phil was already a Harry's subscriber before they came on board, and you can join him by getting that trial set. The handle, the cartridge, the shave gel, the travel blade cover. Head to harrys.com forward slash philhay right now. harrys.com forward slash philhay. Hey, we've had some fun with part three of this podcast because we turn it over to you via Twitter, a Twitter poll on Phil's Twitter account. This week, your three options were Max Gradle, Darko Milinic, and Yusuke Idiguchi. And this week, running it, uh, winning it by a, a mile, running away with it, I was going to say. Max Gradle with over half the vote. Milinic in third place, Idiguchi second. Thank you to the over 11,000 people who voted. We like Max Gradle. Yeah, so do a lot of people, it seems. Uh, there was a, a bit of griping over this one, though, because um, poor old Milinic can't get a break and, um, and can't seem to finish anything other than third uh, in this this poll. And I think um, a lot of people were feeling like they, they knew a little bit about Gradle already. So at some stage, it might be nice to hear about Milinic and his 32 days. And Idiguchi actually is is an interesting one to chat about as well, because it does go down as one of the weirdest signings Leeds have done in, in a long time, which is quite saying something, because you get some you do get some weird signings at, at Leeds. But the, the way it all happened with him was, was particularly odd. So I think what we'll do at some stage in the next few weeks is we will make sure that, that those two get addressed. But Grado, yeah, I mean, anyone you speak to who remembers Grado from his time at Leeds is, is, just remembers him as, as the most lovable guy, really easy to warm to, really full of life, full of fun, and a, a great, great footballer to boot, certainly at championship level. I think, you know, alongside Snodgrass and, and a couple of others, probably as good a, a player as we've seen at Leeds um, in these, these post-Premier League years. 
I mean, he's, he's, a, he's a fascinating guy as well, and he's got a background that I don't think too too many people know about. Obviously, he's a he's an Ivory Coast international, but um, he lived for a long time in in France, and he's back there playing football um at the moment. And the thing about Gradle that people don't aren't too aware of is the the dependency that that his various siblings have on him. When when he first signed for Leeds, and this was back in two thousand and nine, he came on loan from Leicester um in the the League One promotion season. I am. Um, I got in touch with Kevin Bond, who'd been his manager at Bournemouth. He'd had a loan down there previously from Leicester. I said to him, you know, what's he like as a player, but also what's he like as as a person? What's he? How's he going to fit in here? And and are the players going to like him? And Kevin Bond was telling me a story um, about a period in, in during Gradle's loan where his his mother was killed, I think, in a road traffic accident over in Paris. And the Gradles were a, a single parent family anyway. So essentially, at, at the stage where Gradle himself was very young, he was left as the most senior member of of, of the family. He was the the kind of the the man of the house, so to speak, with brothers and sisters who were dependent on him and, and dependent on his earnings. And you know, Bournemouth gave him compassionate leave. They said to him, "Go back to France, take as much time as you'd like." And one night they were playing Barrow in, in the FA Cup and you know Bond had done his pre-match press and he'd said, look, you know, Grader won't be involved. I don't know when he's coming back, but I'm I'm not rushing him back either. It's entirely his decision and, you know, he's got bigger things to, to worry about. And when Bond got to Dean Court that night, a couple of hours before kickoff, Gradle appeared in his office and basically said to him, I'm here, I want to play, stick me in the team. So Bond gave him a place in the squad, he played. He scored, they, they beat Barrow. And Bond said, you'll find that out about him. You'll find out that you might have little flashpoints with him. He, he does have a personality. He does have a, a little bit of an attitude. But actually, you know, deep inside, it's, it's a proper heart of gold. And people forget, and I'd forgotten as well until we, we revisited it on the Extra Ball, uh, one of our other podcasts. We've done a real deep dive into 2009-10 and, and looked into the players that kind of were prominent in that season. And obviously, Gradle got the headlines for what happened at, at Bristol Rove as well. Early doors, anyway, before it was all kind of consumed by the promotion itself. You forget he was signed for two hundred thousand pounds or thereabouts, which is an absolute bargain in modern terms. Well, do you remember it being a particularly exciting signing? I mean, I don't think people thought it was a poor signing. I think they looked at him as somebody who was pretty highly rated by Leicester and just wasn't getting too much of a look in with them at, at the, the point where they were up in in the championship and at a slightly higher level. I think it looked like a it looked like a decent loan, but you know, Leeds track record of loans pre and, and after Grado was pretty patchy and there were some that were, were borderline hopeless, there were some that were, were far more impressive. So I don't think you knew for certain what, what was going to happen. But the the intention, he, he came in in October of the 0910 season and his first game was as a substitute in that amazing game against Norwich that Beckford won in, in I think, the 94th minute after Fraser Forster scuffed out that that goal kick and and he did settle in quickly without being without being electric without looking off the scale but it was always the intention to sign him permanently from um from Leicester and it was done on the night when Leeds were down at Tottenham in the FA Cup in January you know it was it was in the pipeline it was there to be completed and and they did it for two hundred thousand pounds and he went on from that to be pivotal really or, or important in the second half of the of that season towards the 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 actual promotion from League One, much as his, his record was kind of checkered right at the very end of it, a big big black mark from what happened against Bristol Rovers. And then, to my mind, went on to be the best of the players um, in 2010-11 in the Championship. He won a Player of the Year award when I was at the Yorkshire Union Post for that season. And I think when you look at who else was in that team, Becky Owenhausen and Snodgrass and others, for him to, to be the pick of the bunch, and I certainly think he was even now, it was, was quite an achievement and said a lot about his talent. 
I viewed Gradle as kind of a exciting academy prospect level coming from Leicester. You know, it was a little bit of a, a hit and hope is how I took it. What about you, Michael? I remember the first we saw of him, he looked very exciting. He, Grayson always seemed hesitant to use him to begin with. He just was someone we'd bring off the bench and as he'd do from the start of games eventually, just cause a bit of chaos because he was he was very quick. He was very direct. Like he'd always try to cut inside. He'd have shots in a way that, I don't know, I guess how the, the wide players at that time was Snodgrass, but then there was we were playing with Johnson wide quite often, who was not not really an out and out winger. So quite often bringing Gradle on had just add a bit of a bit of something to the to the front two or three. But I recall that season being it kind of went in three spells for him. There was the first bit where he was an impact sub, then he started playing more and more games, but as the team was essentially getting worse during the slump. And then at the end he was more or less the Beckford replacement when he'd lost his form and he scored some crucial goals for us towards the end of that season, to the point where we were thinking he's an automatic starter. And then Bristol Rovers came around and he completely lost it. And like we were saying, from I was watching that game back this morning, strangely enough, just because of um because of the other podcasts we do. And you can see it coming with hindsight. The red card in that game, he's he's having a little nibble at, at Daniel Jones two or three times before then. He's he's flown into a couple of tackles. He's had a little shove of him at one point. They've been they've already been nose to nose. And he did have that in his game to the extent that I think at the end of that that game in particular, uh, some people were saying we need to get rid of him. He's he's a complete liability. But then when we came back the next season, he did seem to have improved. And as far as I can remember, there was no major drama with him from that point onwards. He's the the best example I can think of of somebody who erred and, and erred very badly in, in a game of, of massive significance and realised that he needed to redeem himself, regardless of the fact that they'd gone up and, and actually set about redeeming himself. I didn't think there was any coincidence at all that he played as well um, in, in his second season at Leeds because he, he was aware of what he'd potentially done against Bristol Rovers. It, it, you're right, it was a, a kind of red card coming and it was weird on that day to see Beckford, of all people, playing peacemaker and, and trying to get him off the pitch. I, I interviewed Beckford for the Athletic right back at, at the start of this season and, and we, we spoke about that and, and he said that all he was trying to say to Grado was, if you don't get off the pitch, this is only going to get worse. You know, you, you can't you can't take back what you've done to to Daniel Jones, but you, you need to get out of here. You need to get down to the dressing room and you need to leave us to get on with it. You know, we're going to have to sort this out now and we're going to have to rearrange, but just get yourself out of it and do not cause yourself any more grief by doing something that you shouldn't with the referee. And when Cradle won our, um, the, the YEP's Player of the Year award the following season, I, we, we were always in the habit of interviewing who, whoever won it. So I, I phoned the club and told them and said, you know, it'd be great to get hold of him and, and do a, a proper sit down. Um, with them and, and the person I spoke to went away and had a chat and, and phoned me and he said you've honestly made a little African winger as happy as I've ever seen him and I was quite surprised by that because as much as awards are awards and it's nice to win them and it's nice you know acknowledgement of the way that you've played you, you do wonder how much anybody really cares about you know a local newspaper's player of the year prize I, I could never be sure everybody was always very grateful to you but you know what does it mean is it you know does it does it really matter and when I when I interviewed him he said it, it matters to me because I wasn't sure when I was sitting in the dressing room after during the Bristol Rovers game and particularly as the team were 1-0 down I wasn't sure if I'd ever be able to play here again and I think he felt that had they not gone up and had they not finished in the top two he'd have had no choice but to have carried the can for that and there was far more to the season you know there was that slump there were the poor results it wasn't as if 
that was the kind of breaking point. But it could have it could have finished Leeds off in the fight for the top two. It was it was very borderline. And I think it, it gave him huge satisfaction that he'd he'd got over that and, and he'd redeemed himself by playing in the way that he did. You know, he, he hadn't just got over it by time elapsing and people kind of forgetting it. He'd he'd done it by scoring I think eighteen goals, eighteen league goals in, in the two thousand ten eleven season and by being the best of the bunch, um, which which he undoubtedly was. And you know, I, I always thought that was really telling. It it did very much matter to him. You know, it mattered to him that, that he, he wasn't going out of Leeds with people saying, as Michael, you know, mentioned, thank God we've got rid of this guy, he's an absolute liability. Actually, by the time he did come to leave, he was another one that people were desperate to keep. When do you think Grayson changed his mind on him? Because obviously in that first season he wasn't starting him and he was Gradle's coming on and playing well, but then we were experimenting with McSheffrey on loan and Sanchez Watt getting the odd game. And I don't know, it, the impression was that Grayson himself wasn't necessarily sold on him. And then on that in that season, he was our most important player all of a sudden. The point at which he came in, there was no great issue with the team. The form was excellent. And, you know, they, they kind of cruised over 50 points um, by the turn of the year. It was really, it felt to me that it was it was through the, the kind of early part of spring and, and towards the end of the season when the results were were a little bit grim and, and everybody was starting to worry. The Gradle came into his own because the threat was there from him. Like like you said, he, he was such a direct runner. He loved to get at fullbacks and he was incredibly quick and, and physically fit. I mean, I, I think of the players who've been at Leeds who haven't played for Bielsa, I think he is probably the perfect fit in terms of his physicality and the way he works and, and his energy levels. I think I think he would have been dynamite on the Bielsa. But Grayson started to realise that that you know that was there, and and you're right. He scored against Southend. He scored away at Carlisle. I remember him scoring against MK Dons, and these were games that Leeds were trying to win at a point where the goals had kind of dried up for Beckford, and it was all you know, there was a lot of pressure on him, and and even Grayson's assistants were saying to him, "Look, you need to think about taking Jermaine out of the team because he it isn't working." I remember Richard Naylor saying to me, "It was a case of." You know, it felt at times like playing with ten players because ultimately, if Beckford wasn't scoring and he wasn't finishing, then what was he doing? You know, what what were we actually getting out of him? Um, and Grail did just have that that little bit of magic in him that that they needed. But then, obviously, when it came to the crunch on the last day of the season, was caught up in that that spat with Daniel Jones and and left Leeds in an awful lot of trouble. There's an interesting story around that. You know, I didn't actually make it to that game, which is one of my all time lifetime regrets when it comes to Leeds because I was convinced we'd set off so well in that season. I was sure that we would have promotion well in the bag by that point. So I was committed to going to my mate Stagdu over in Manchester. And um, it was clay pigeon shooting out in the woods. And then we went out, you know, into town having a few drinks. Stayed in a very dubious hotel, but that's probably a, a story for a different podcast. However, at the very moment when Gradle got sent off, I had a shotgun in my hand. And uh, <laughs> Lord only knows what could have happened if we hadn't have turned that thing around. It was that sort of day. I mean, I, sometimes when I think back to that that game, it, it still surprises me that they were able to draw breath again after that goal from Bristol Rovers. There was a, a certain element to, um, or a, a kind of trait to, to Grayson's team, certainly as as it went on, and, and more so in the Championship in, than in League One. But on days where they were vulnerable, that teams who found a way to get at them once could could get through a few times, and and that it, you know, it, it, by that point it had become a, a little bit flaky, and because. Bristol Rovers had the extra man because they were a goal up. I I was sitting there. Millwall were winning at the time, so you knew that the live table was changing and and Leeds were in, in difficulties. I just had visions of Bristol Rovers picking them off and picking them off. And you know, again, it, it was that key introduction of Housen and that great finish from the edge of the box that 
that changed everything. Because I'm absolutely certain if Bristol Rovers had scored again, that Leeds would have ended up in the playoffs in the, the weeks that followed. I don't think they would have come back from anything more than uh, than a, a 1-0 deficit. But it always interested me in that game that, that Andy Hughes says that, you know, at the point where they got got in front 2-1, he said they, they were so organised and so disciplined in their shape. They understood so well how to play that he had absolutely no expectation of conceding again. And, you know, as, as we all remember, I think Bristol Rovers' appetite for the game kind of dried up with 20 minutes to go when they realised that the, the priority for them was going to be getting off the pitch. How many goals does Gradle score in this team? Good question. Um, because nobody scores a huge amount of goals in this team. Players have chances, players are, are involved. Um, Bielsa's wingers tend to do a bit more graft outside um, outside the box than they do inside the box, although he does like um, players from both sides to, to kind of drift into the back post when they overlaid the overload the opposite side of the pitch. I think I would have backed him in a season like this or a season like last season to have gone into double figures. I, I really do. When, when he was playing as he played under Grayson, and particularly in that championship year, he, he was just deadly. Um, he was such a threat and, and he knew how to score. He, he had a, a very good finish on him. Um, so I think if, if he was in this squad at the moment, I'd feel comfortable in saying that he'd be as close as anyone to rivaling Patrick Bamford to be top scorer. Well, as you well know, the show came out a little bit earlier this week because we're playing on Thursday against Stoke at Ellen Road. The Barnsley game has been shifted, so it's going to be the same story next week, I expect. So... We'll preview the Barnsley game next week. But before we get round to all that, we want ones to watch, please, Phil, for Stoke and then Swansea, if we could. The issue or player that we're going to be looking out for. Okay, let's be let's be brave and let's do this. It is currently 1-0 to Charlton away at Brentford, 52 minutes gone. Um, so needless to say, I'm, I'm in danger of, of jinxing this one. But if it holds for Charlton, if Leeds win on Thursday night, the thing that you need to be looking at, the only thing to watch in all this is the league table because actually if the gap winds up at um, at eight or nine points um, on Thursday night, then there is the potential for Leeds to be promoted this weekend. It could happen at Swansea on Sunday depending on what happens on Saturday afternoon. Um, so I could go through players and I could go through coaches and I could go through tactics and everything else, but quite honestly, everybody, just keep your eyes on the table. You idiot. <laughs> <laughs> Just say we don't score free kicks again. Yes, that's probably the right way to go with this, isn't it? If if I say that I see Leeds being third by um, full time on Sunday, that would uh, that probably be the the right way to go with this. Well, at the very moment that you're talking, we're seeing Brentford pummeling the Charlton goal. Just please, can they just hold out, please? And uh, Fulham have won at Forest, which I think is quite significant, and probably knocks Forest out of the automatic race now because they are. Uh, what nine points off uh, off West Brom, and obviously West Brom and us have got a game in hand. It's it's still permutations, a hundred percent, and and there's plenty that could go on on Saturday that would make um, promotion impossible at the weekend. But this goes back to what we were saying at the start of this podcast: that the games are turning over so quickly that in in a kind of regular season, you could still kind of be three or four weeks away. But but one way or another, the table is going to be decided in little under a fortnight now. So we're but everybody is, is on the brink um, and at some point something's got to give somewhere. Well, it is all over in a couple of weeks and Phil and The Athletic are going to be right there with you every step of the way. You can get that 30-day free trial by heading to theathletic.com forward slash leads pod. We'll catch you next week. The Phil Hay Show.